Welcome to the Subscription League, a podcast by Purchasely. Listen to what's working in subscription apps. In each episode, we invite leaders of the app industry who are mastering the subscription model for mobile apps. To learn more about subscriptions, head to subscriptionleague.com. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody. Today, I have Nicolas Tissier as my co-host, and we'll be interviewing Jesse Wilkins, Senior Growth Manager at The Guardian. He has worked on how to convert Guardian's reader to Guardian's subscriber with no paywall and while keeping all the content free. In 2018, The Guardian with Jesse's team crossed the 1 million financial supports. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. And do you want to tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, yeah. Hello, and thank you for having me. So, yeah, as you've mentioned, I've been at The Guardian for five, six years now, and I was lucky enough to be working in a team in back in 2016 that kind of came onto the idea of voluntary donations product, which we called Contributions. And that developed really well, um, has developed really well and played a, a significant part in that one million number that you mentioned and also in helping us break even. Awesome. And so you're working in an industry that has struggled to find a business model in the digital age. Can you explain what business model the Guardian has landed on and from what you just said, allowed you to break even with those 1 million financial supports? Definitely. I'll start with some fundamentals. So our belief at The Guardian is that the world is a better place when people understand the world that we are in and have journalism that is freely available to help explain that world. And the model that we've settled on is a supporter model that enables our readers to give, but our journalism remains free and open to anyone. So any reader, regardless of whether they give or not, can access our website and they can read an unlimited number of articles every day anywhere in the world. And in terms of how the business model works on that side, so print and advertising revenue streams have always been important and they remain critical. But the digital reader revenues is where we have seen the growth in recent years. And by that, I mean our contributions product, digital subscriptions, a former membership scheme. And as you've kind of touched upon already, contributions is a donations product where readers give a one-time, a monthly or an annual amount in order to support. They get nothing tangible in return. Digital subscriptions does not give access to additional content. So it's not a subscription in that sense, but it enhances the reader's experience with features such as ad-free. And we've seen fantastic growth on both of those products. And can you give some background on the ownership model at The Guardian? Because my understanding is that it's not a typical news organization either. Yeah, so that ownership model is quite key to how things came about. So The Guardian is owned by the Scott Trust, and the Scott Trust has one purpose, and that is to support The Guardian in perpetuity. So there are no requirements to pay out to shareholders. There is no owner or Murdoch figure demanding returns. And that has enabled the organization to take a different view over the long term and build a huge audience. And to kind of go back a little bit, keeping the website free and open enabled The Guardian to go. I think in the early 90s, it was the eighth biggest UK paper. So it was, you know, it was a relatively small paper in the UK back then by kind of the 2015. I think it was in the top three in the English speaking world globally in terms of the website audience. So there was already a success story there in terms of audience. But back at that point, as I'm sure you guys will remember too, the rise of Google and Facebook in the advertising world, amongst other things, meant there were very heavy losses at The Guardian and something needed to change in the business model. 
And Kafeiner, who became editor-in-chief in 2015, set things out quite clearly in terms of values and said, we want our journalism to remain global, free, accessible for our readers and not available only to those who can afford it. And we want to give people the opportunity to contribute regardless of how much or how often, where they live, how they get their news. So the organization wanted a model that a way of giving that felt part of that and spoke to those values and was an extension of it rather than something that we stuck onto it. So that was that kind of context. And then we tried things. We tried a membership model. We tried digital subscriptions and contributions. Consideration was given to a paywall, but the decision was made to go with a more open model and it paid off. You know, they made a profit by 2019. I would say we found a way that worked for us and it fitted that model and the times we were in. I wouldn't presuppose that would work for everybody. I do think there are lessons that we have learned that could be applied elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. and I'm sure you'll share a lot of those as we uh, as we move through the interview. Curious because you're describing a, a challenging place that you are in where you have to keep the content free and yet you still have money. So in a way, you're trying to get people to give you money for nothing and nothing different that they couldn't get otherwise. Can you tell us how you approach that challenge? Definitely. So yeah, as you've very kind of described there, it was a very particular problem at that point in time. Huge readership, amazing breadth of content, high quality content, but also a commitment not to put any of that behind a paywall. And having that guardrail I described where we said there will be no paywall, it actually made things simpler. We didn't have to think too hard about that. We knew there wasn't going to be one within the team I was in. So then you focus on persuading readers to give on a voluntary basis. And, you know, as you guys will know better than me, that's a hard thing to do in many ways. Most content businesses will ultimately either withhold content or functionality, or they might create friction as a way of persuading users to pay. But not having that option gave us a bit of focus. And I'll just describe some of the kind of very early experiments at that time, we had a small membership scheme where people could pay a monthly fee. And as a reward for becoming a member, they were giving things such as a bag with Guardian branding and a certificate. And I remember one key piece of research where some of these members came to us and they said, please don't send me these things. <laughs> I wanted all of my money to go to journalism. And you're, you're posting me these physical things and it must be costing you money. And that really stuck at the time. And it helped us think about the problem. You know, when people are coming to you and saying, I just want my money to go to the journalism, that's, that's a helpful thing. Another thing that sticks is we had a colored pop-up banner. And that worked to some degree. And it's one of the first things I worked on. And we had the line, for the price of a coffee, you can support independent journalism. Some of the listeners might remember that if they are longtime readers of The Guardian. And that worked well as well. So there were some signals, you know, that we were getting. And we then experimented with a bit more copy to make a pitch just for people to give, getting nothing in return. And we initially used our existing ad unit containers. So as a kind of newspaper, the online newspaper, The Guardian has a whole kind of host of ad unit containers, basically powered by Google Ads. And we put some of our messages within those containers because, you know, they were there. It was functionality there to use, really. And it didn't really work. There wasn't much success there. And then we played with some different formats and designs. And then we tried a kind of bespoke container at the end of our articles. It wasn't an ad unit. It was a more kind of native feel. And that was a breakthrough. It worked very well in comparison to the ad unit messages. So for websites, for mobile apps, it's always great to be able to experiment uh, and to experiment. Obviously, we have to use A-B testing. Can you tell us in your mind why it's so important to do A-B testing and do those experimentations? 
Sure, sure. So from those very early experiments, there were four insights worth pulling out. One of them was that a native design was important. So we have ads on our site. They are incredibly non-invasive. They've been beautifully incorporated into the user experience, but nevertheless, they are ads. And it turned out that having a message that was at the end of the article in a design language, which felt like an extension of that article, it put us into the journalistic space and it kept the reader's attention. And that was really important. We found that language and tone were another thing, and I could talk more about that. Conversational tone really worked for us. And you might remember this. We said, since you're here, we've got a favor to ask. So since you're at the end of this article, we've got something to ask, quite direct, quite conversational. Number three was the message did not have to be short and snappy. So conventional wisdom suggests otherwise. And to this day, people come to me and said, you should really consider making that message a bit shorter. But we found that people... And you're like, we did. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We, we have tested this stuff hundreds of times. We found that a longer message was effective. And the thing about a longer message is it gives you the space to say more, to talk about more complex things, more things and articulate ideas and tell more of our story. So that was important. Finally, the position in the reader's experience was important. So we are talking to the readers when they have just read an article and they have got some value. But yeah, all in all, I mean, you will still see the message there to this day. And it doesn't look super slick, but it ties to our core purpose and it's powerful and it remains so. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, like you've tested the length of the message and that kind of stuff. Like how much optimization did you put behind the current messaging on each article and subscription page? So the short answer is a lot. So yeah, we when we'd kind of got to this point I just described, we now had a channel that which we could use to try and persuade readers to support us. We found that the words, the ideas, the language and the tone were all important. And that lent itself to A-B testing copy. And obviously, from a technical perspective, changing some words and running that as an A-B test is relatively simple. You know, we had to build some infrastructure, but it's not a crazy hard thing to do. So that kind of setup meant that we could test that copy quite aggressively when we combined it with research and we used it as a way to develop our core support proposition. And regarding those membership banner, I'm not sure, is it a good way to call them? Do you have anything to share regarding the triggering strategy and the way the copy and the messaging is adapted to the content on which it is displayed? Sure. So in direct answer to your question, when we show the messages and what we say is adapted to the copy, it's all been kind of explored and optimized through copy testing. Basically, no changes are made unless they are validated. If we don't find an improvement, we won't change it. So everything is kind of structured in that way and the learnings have been built up over time in that way. Many of the major news events of the last few years, such as Trump, Brexit, the pandemic, major elections have created huge surges in our kind of readers' engagement. And we have been able to adapt our messaging to speak to those events and the role that The Guardian plays in them. We also adapt our copy to our regions. Some topics resonate strongly with readers. So subjects such as climate change, for example, are very important to them. And those sorts of data points have led us to create campaigns such as our Climate Pledge, which we have run for the past two years, which you may have seen on the site. I would say the kind of, if you were to say like, how far can that go? It's been a fantastic kind of tool for us. There is a point at which 
you kind of run to the edge of the benefit. So there is a complexity overhead when segmenting our audience too much. And there are also benefits to simplicity where it's possible because that enables you to move much quicker and test much quicker. So there is a kind of trade-off and it's not a kind of infinite world of always kind of test and segment more, but yeah, huge benefits. One other thing that always fascinates me with the A-B testing and all that kind of stuff is hearing about the failed experiments and the surprising failures, but also the surprising success. So we kind of know what works by just, you know, looking at the website and see what is there today. Can you tell us about those failed experiments and surprises? Sure. So, yeah, I'll keep it to kind of ones within the team I was in. But yeah, we all have a list of our favorite failures and they all seemed like such a good idea at the time, <laughs> you know, and that's the great thing about them. So a few of the kind of ones that jump out at me are we had something that we called a love button, which was a heart emoji button that people could click on to show how much they loved us. It's fair to say that one didn't go very far. We had a point early on, and I talked about this at the beginning, we really wanted to double down on the point that we did not have a billionaire owner. And we thought we would represent this visually with a yacht because billionaires have yachts, right? So we had a picture of a, a yacht, a nice little graphic, and, and our billionaire yacht was sinking to show how little we needed billionaires. Again, it made, it made sense at the time, but it's fair to say that we managed to muddle the message along the way. And I remember we got some early feedback from readers who were really quite worried about the sinking ship because they thought that was the Guardian. And, and they, <laughs> they were like, are you, are you okay, guys? You've got a sinking ship here. It doesn't seem to be going well. So that's, that was another one. It didn't get much further. We did. I mean, there have been long and passionate debates about some of the color changes, buttons and things. And it's fair to say that color changes have not been something that we, we have seen huge changes from. We learned that words were a kind of something we were better at changing. So things like photography and images, perhaps on our landing page, was a little bit less successful. We tried a Valentine's message. That was another one that didn't get much further. And then the making the messages shorter, it continues to come up. And it's another one where it's not that it can't be done, but it's not an obvious route to success. So yeah, that's just like a few that come to mind. Interesting. You know, the one that you mentioned about the colors not changing much, there's so many places online where they'll say, oh, you need to make sure to maybe test the color of your buttons and all that. It'll make a huge impact. And I guess, you know, it always depends on the website and on the app. So it's very interesting to hear that for you guys, that didn't have much of an impact. Yeah. What about the, on the mobile side? Because all those experiments are easily connected on the web. So how do you perform on mobile? Is there any difference with what you noticed on the web? When you say mobile, do you mean mobile web? Well, yeah, mobile app, I mean. Or mobile app. I wouldn't say we have seen significant differences if we kind of, yeah, talking about things like colors and so on. I mean, I would say very broadly, the app audience consumes much more content and it has often reacted very well to learnings that we have seen on web and also vice versa. Learnings from our app audience have translated at times quite well onto our web audience. So there's some cross-pollination there. I guess I would say in terms of the kind of velocity of testing and learning, it has been easier on our web platforms because it's been a bigger audience with more data, more conversions, and we've been able to build tooling to support that more successfully. Nice. One of the benefits of the approach that you're taking is you have all the content available to everybody. It's not hidden behind a paywall. That, how does that impact your job and you know the findings that you can have by having all that content available? 
Sure. So yeah, keeping the journalism on our website free and open is part of our values. And it's actually become one of the reasons people give. So people have told us that the idea that they are giving in order for others to access it is actually one of the motivations. I would say giving people unrestricted access has probably helped us understand what is important to a wider range of readers than a paywalled site. You know, obviously, I haven't worked on the paywalled site at the same time, but it's almost certainly given us access to a wider range of people and helped build our understanding of them. And I would say we probably have more signals as well in that we can really see what people read when there are no restrictions and how they behave. As I said, it's probably made things simpler and it really focused us on persuasion. Another thing that you can see on the website today, it's enabled us to do things like tell the reader how much they have read. So you will see a message on the end of article containers and it will say, you know, you have read um, 100 articles in the past 12 months. And that's really effective in reminding a user how much value they have received. And it's quite powerful. It's just telling them, you know, this is how much you've enjoyed our website. The more that somebody reads, the higher that number is and the more effective the message becomes. And that's, I guess that's another example that it wouldn't really be the same if you could only read one article per month. But if you have that unrestricted access, obviously it changes that picture. And And were you able to correlate kind of that reading number to donations in any way? I'm curious to understand if, is it your heavier reader that are donating the most or is there a different correlation there? We don't necessarily see a correlation with how much an individual is likely to give, but we do see the more engaged a reader is, the more heavily they read us, they do become more likely to give. And that's not going to be a surprise, right? Someone reading 20 articles a day every day for a year is just a heavy user and, and clearly likes the product. So there is definitely that correlation has always been there. And we've just through that article count element, we've surfaced it and we are reflecting value back to people to kind of almost remind them of how much they've enjoyed reading us. That's a great feature. The solution that you've picked for The Guardian is very different from what most newspaper websites have picked so far. Do you have a guess as to why it's working for you guys while everybody's going the other direction? It's a big question. I feel like there could be a whole episode about alternative universes <laughs> where the anyone, you know, the New York Times might have gone with an open website and where that might have got them. So we've talked about, you know, some of the factors about ownership structure and beliefs in open journalism that took us down our path and how we made it work. Honestly, it's hard for me to say that it couldn't work for others. It's been a huge experiment for us. It's not a simple thing, obviously, for our media peers to try and just suddenly completely switch off your paywall. But the landscape does change all the time. One thing I do think it's never kind of black and white. It's never just one thing or the other. And there are overlaps between both approaches. And one interesting thing that I've seen is that quite big chunks of our messaging strategy have been copied by organizations around the world. So I have a file with screenshots and there are gray and yellow boxes appearing at the end of articles in all sorts of unexpected places from Argentina to the Netherlands to the US. And some of them have lifted the language word for word or yeah, and translated it. <laughs> So yeah, large parts, and that's, you know, I've described how our solution, how that came about, but 
Just because we arrived at it through our path doesn't mean that it can't be used for other organizations. So I chatted to a newspaper in the Netherlands last year, and it was a fairly open conversation. And I shared the things that had worked well for us. And I kind of explained how the end of article message was structured. And they tried it and they had a go and they reported back that it was quite successful for them. And they were essentially a paywalled site. So that's quite interesting to me, the kind of, you know, lifting certain parts and moving them back and forth. I do think the scale of our audience, which has come about because of that openness, has accelerated how quickly we've been able to learn. And as a person kind of at the center of trying, you know, a couple of hundred things or so a year, I know how important that scale and that velocity is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you guys are are lucky to have a, a large audience to do some A-B testing that is meaningful very quickly, I'm assuming. Definitely. So yeah, if you go back to those kind of early days that I described when we, we realized we had this message and that we could change things for improvement, it was really exciting. And we found that A-B testing was both a means to improve our conversion rate, but it was also just a tool to learn. And bear in mind at this point, there was not really a template for our kind of model. And there wasn't really a manual on how to do it. The messages were very visible as they are to this day. So the wider world could see what we were doing. And there was actually a cartoon in the private eye magazine in 2017 and it depicted the guardian as having a begging bowl and asking you know asking for money you know it's fair to say there was some doubt as like whether this approach could really work and whether you could just ask for money um so the ab testing really helped us explore and learn and the advantage we had was that our copy was displayed a few times a month to each reader around the world and as you've said the size and the scale of that audience meant we could get results back quite quickly so we had lots of data coming in and that created the potential for a very tight and fast feedback loop. And we'd conduct user interviews and other forms of research, form a hypothesis, translate that into a copy variant, publish on the site, get answers back within two, three days quite often. And we had a very small cross-functional team. Um, sometimes the researcher would sit next to the copywriter who would sit next to me. The work would flow straight through very, very quickly. And I'm sure like many of you, you guys listening will understand that being able to learn quickly is a fantastic thing. If you can try hundreds of things in a 12-month period, it allows ideas to flourish and be tried. It gives room to fail. So most of our ideas failed, but we learned from all of them. And we were able to double down on the wins and build a foundation of knowledge very quickly. It became a really valuable tool to help us tell our, our story. So we're an organization with hundreds of journalists, but we weren't so used to telling our own story. And the research and the A-B testing enabled us to see ourselves as our readers saw us. So kind of hold that mirror up and speak to them in an authentic way. And yeah, one important point we pulled out there was we discovered that the reason people read us and the reasons they choose to give are not quite the same. You might think they are, but there was a, a distinction there. And again, having that kind of research testing loop allowed us to get that deeper understanding and to be able, again, to reflect to readers why they might want to support us. And it's interesting when we look back on this process, in retrospect, it's easier to see the pivotal moments and when things changed. But when you're in it, it's less clear. And also looking back, we can see just how much didn't work and how messy that path was at times. Yeah, because I'm sure most of the changes as you were making them were small changes and not huge step forward. So yeah, totally get that. Well, Jesse, those were all the questions we had ready for you today. If people want to learn more about The Guardian and more about you, where can they go? 
If you want to learn more about The Guardian, you can always look on The Guardian site and you will see, you know, what we're trying, what our approaches are. In terms of asking me about more details, you can find me on LinkedIn and I'd love to chat. I really enjoy kind of dissecting problems and approaches and I'd love to hear from people about things that they have tried or questions that they have um, on things that we have done. Great. Thank you very much for coming today. It was such a pleasure to have you and hear your answers to all those questions so we could share that knowledge. So really, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Jesse. Bye-bye. On behalf of the Purchase League team, thank you for listening to the Subscription League podcast. If you've enjoyed what you heard, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or other audio platform. To find out more about Purchase League and how we can improve your subscription business, visit purchaselead.com. Please hit subscribe in your podcast player and don't miss any future episodes. You can also listen to previous episodes at subscriptionleague.com. See you soon.